What a good God that we serve. Amen? Amen. Please open up your Bibles, not to the book of Genesis, but to the book of 1 Peter. I think we're going to spend one more week, at least, before we go back to our series going through the book. I'm excited to get back to it, but I felt that there was one more thing that we need to hear from the Lord from his word on. So 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 19. So the worst part, as you're turning there, about a vacation or a break, who can tell me what the worst part about a vacation is? The end. We all know the answer to this. The worst part is the end. That's, the, that's, that's terrible. You had this awesome week, and then it's the end, and you think, i got to get back to it now. Or sometimes, like it's the case with the Christmas holidays, we put more work into that break than we do normally. So we go into vacation in order to work, and then we get done, and you need like a break from the break. You know what I'm talking about? When it's the holidays... We put things on the back burner for a little bit, and then after a period of time, the vacation's gone, but what we put on the back burner is not gone. It's still there, simmering slowly in the background. And after the holidays, you have to take it off the back burner, and you have to finish what you previously started. It would not be good to leave it there, but that's what many of us are tempted to do, myself included. Before the holidays, and even leading into the holidays, our church experienced a good amount of hurt and confusion. And ultimately, hurt and confusion breeds hurt and confusion. There's a saying that I heard when I was younger that I haven't forgotten, hurting people hurt people. Well, our church experienced a good bit of hurt and probably distributed a good deal of hurt as well. These things have to be dealt with. Holidays probably weren't an appropriate time. Now is the time. We've had time to breathe and collect ourselves. We've had time to contemplate and evaluate. We've had time to pray and seek the Lord. And now that the holidays are over, it's time to recognize the situation, address it, and take full advantage of it. And that word is very intentional. Take full advantage and what I mean by this is exactly what we're going to look at today from God's Word. So if you were there in 1 Peter chapter 4, I would invite you to stand together for the reading of God's Holy Word. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Church, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired every word that we just read, would you please so work in our hearts and minds this morning, giving us understanding and depth of insight that we might not otherwise glean on our own. Speak to us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You can take a seat. Before we apply this text to our current trial, we need to understand the context of Peter's original audience. Peter wrote this letter in the early 60s AD, and at that time there was an emperor named Nero. And Nero, basically he was crazy. He was off his rocker. He had a power trip, like many of those men do, still even today, get this power trip, and he had this idea. He wanted to rebuild certain things in Rome. Well, in order to do that, some space has to be made for it. So he set fire to Rome, and as rumors were spreading about him doing this, he needed someone to pin it on. He denied doing it. And so he blamed it on a group, a group that was the easiest target for him, the Christians. The Christians set fire to Rome. And so there was all of this speculation and accusation, and Christians entered into a severe time of persecution. About 10 years later, you would see the, des the destruction of the temple as well. It was intense. Christians were set ablaze and would be burned alive for their faith. Christians would be covered in the skins of dead animals and forced to fight until they died. Christians would be strung up behind carriages, these chariots, and then they would whip the horse and just drag them through the streets. Sometimes they would be tortured until they admitted to doing something wrong. It was intense. This is the context that Peter is writing into when he speaks about trials and persecutions and suffering. Sometimes we come to the text with our own ideas and import those ideas into the text. So we read, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, and we're like, yes, when I have that trial, when I have to floss and it hurts, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace it. <laughs> this is not really the type of trial he's talking about. Saying when they strap you up to kill you, don't be surprised at this. It really gives this passage a lot more weight. As we work through the passage, we need to keep this intense suffering in mind, but I also don't want us to make another mistake of assuming, well, he's talking about this intense persecution, therefore this doesn't really apply to our situation. This can't apply to, to my everyday life trials and sufferings because this is talking about so, something so much worse. It's apples and oranges. I'm going to suggest to you this morning it's not apples and oranges. This might happen one day to us in America. It's helpful for us in that instance, but I think it applies even now. So what I want to do this morning is something called arguing from the greater to the lesser. There's a Latin phrase for this type of argument called a fortiori. A simple example is like this. If I can afford the steak, 
surely I can afford a McDonald's cheeseburger. <laughs> if I can afford this great thing, surely that same amount of money will afford me something lesser. That is arguing from the greater to the lesser. We see these types of arguments in the Bible, such as Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. Jesus says this, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Here's what Jesus is saying. If an evil being can do good, surely a good God can do good. It is so hard for someone evil to do something great, but if an evil person can do great, imagine what a good God can do. It is arguing from the lesser to the greater. What I want to do this morning is look at how Peter describes intense suffering in order to help us understand how we should treat all of our trials. If these truths can help believers overcome the worst of suffering, then surely they will help believers overcome any suffering. So I'm going to give you five truths this morning if you're taking notes. I don't think I gave you the main idea of this morning. I better do that because people are going to hit me up afterwards. Here's the main idea. To be like Jesus, Christians must learn to suffer well. To be like Jesus, Christians must learn to suffer well. Here's the first truth this morning. Very simple. Number one, expect suffering. Expect suffering. Trials are going to come. All the parents in the house said, amen. <laughs> Trials will come. We should expect it. Trials hit us hardest when we least expect them. There's a phrase in sports, it's called being flat-footed. For those of you that play tennis, you'll especially be familiar with this. Probably football, I would assume I never played, but I'm assuming it's a similar thing. You never want to be flat-footed. That means that your feet are completely planted on the ground. I am intending to stay in this position. I'm not intending to move quickly. If I want to be able to move quickly, I need to be on the balls of my feet, my heels slightly elevated, so that when it's time for me to move, I don't have to lose time with a wasted motion. Those of you that are familiar with baseball and softball, that's a pretty big deal here. You know what I'm talking about. Whenever the batter gets ready to hit the ball, you don't want to have the bat at mid-position because then when they pitch, what are you going to do? You're going to waste time pulling it back to swing. So they want you to start with it already loaded into place. So as the, at the exact moment that the time is right, that bat can come full swing through. Trials hit us hardest when we are not expecting them. You want to be ready, and the only way to be ready is to expect and prepare. If not, our unexpected trials, when they hit, will disorient us and confuse us and hinder us from responding the right way and in a timely manner. That's why sometimes when we get bad news, initially it's the end of the world. And then time passes, and we can orient ourselves correctly. And it's still hard, but we are more collected once we've thought and processed through these things. Now, this does not mean always expect the worst. Some of us in here are really good at that. <laughs> always expect the worst. That's what Garrett said. He said, expect it, it's going to happen. You know what? That's not what I'm saying. Rather, it means... When the worst does come, 
don't be surprised. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Not if, but when. Do not be surprised. When he suggests that it isn't strange... Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. What he's saying is it's not abnormal. This is normal. When you sign up for the Christian life, you sign up for suffering. Sometimes we present this gospel that says if you will just turn to Jesus, your life will be perfect after that. Your marital problems will all go away. Your financial problems will be fixed. Everything will be okay. And that is not true. Christianity does not eliminate our suffering in this life. It eliminates suffering for a future life with God forever in heaven. But in this life, there is still suffering. And especially for Christians, because there is a spiritual war going on around us. Even right now, there are things that we cannot see that are waging war against our soul. And in America, we have fooled ourselves into thinking what we see is what we get. That is not necessarily true. There are spiritual forces around us that are waging war with our soul. We should not be surprised when fiery trials come at us. And if you think about Jesus, Jesus also suffered a lot. So we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer. Number two, remember that suffering is planned for a purpose. Remember that suffering is planned for a purpose. Do you notice in verse 12 the word test? Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. This begs the question, who's the one initiating the test? Grammatically, the suffering comes to test, but suffering is not a being with a will. It doesn't decide, okay, I think I'm going to test. Okay, I think I'm going to take a vacation. I think I'm going to eat supper. That's not how that works. Suffering doesn't just decide to do something. It decides nothing. The answer is further down in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. God's will is that we would sometimes suffer. This is not an easy truth, but it is a biblical truth. We see it right here. I want to communicate to you this morning that there is no suffering that is worse than meaningless suffering. It's only because our suffering has purpose that we can endure the worst of it. If our suffering was pointless, it would be that much worse, would it not? Who wants to experience pointless suffering? How many of us sign up to the dentist and say, hey, I want you to numb my mouth up and then just drill away because I'm just in the mood for that? No. We don't want pointless suffering. Our suffering, if it's not planned and if there's no purpose, it comes with no hope. It's the fact that God plans it for a specific reason that gives us the strength we need to endure. As an example of this, turn to the book of James chapter 1. 
It's just, I mean, you just flip back a few pages, you'll hit it. James chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. James 1, 2 through 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here we see the same term used in reference to trials, testing. But we have a slight addition. We see here what's being tested. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith. It is our faith that is being tested in trials and in suffering. Suffering is one of the ways that God teaches us to trust him. According to James, when we suffer, we learn steadfastness. We learn to wait on God and to lean upon God. God, this is hard. I need you to sustain me. And he says, okay, I will. And we learn to lean and to wait for that sustaining power. It teaches us patience in suffering, so that when the next trial hits, we'll be that much prepared for it. And James tells us to let that trial-produced steadfastness do its work. In verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What he's saying is, without this suffering-produced steadfastness, you are not complete. There is still something lacking within us after we come to faith. And there are various means that God uses to develop this in our life. Suffering here in one sense, helps to complete us because the steadfastness that's developed has this effect where we are being made more and more like our Lord and Savior. One more example in the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Romans chapter 5. 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So here, yet again, suffering is doing something. It's producing endurance, which produces character, which produces hope, which produces assurance. Put simply, when you suffer, you learn to endure, and it's producing this Christ-like quality within you. So as you become more and more Christ-like, our hope of what we have in the future becomes more secure. I know I follow Christ because he's working in my life and I can see this growth. So I know in the future I'm going to be rejoicing with him when he's revealed. It is developing our confidence in our faith. I want to give a personal example here of a very, very close friend of mine. He's a few years younger than I am, 
and about two to three years ago, he called me. It was pretty late one night, and he was, he was not beside himself, but close. He had lost his father in an accident. It was unexpected, very, very tragic, good health, lost his father in an accident. He was devastated. His mother was devastated. This man that passed away was a godly man who loved Jesus. People at his funeral testified to these things. My friend recounted to me a conversation that another Christian was having with his mother to try to comfort her. And to give you a picture of this family, when they were growing up, if there was a soccer tournament on the weekend and they weren't going to be there on Sunday, they told my friend, we're not playing soccer, we're going to church. They were committed, committed Christians, they loved Jesus, sweet, gentle people. And he's relaying to me this conversation, and the person told her something like this, I'm just so sorry, he was such a good man. God didn't want this to happen, or this wasn't part of God's plan. I don't remember which of those two it was, but that was what was said. This wasn't part of God's plan. While I don't remember the exact phrase that the person used, I will never forget how his mother responded. Yes, he did. This was part of God's plan. This can't be meaningless. I would never think to comfort someone that way in the midst of their suffering. But she found comfort in knowing the death of my husband is not meaningless. Imagine the despair that would overtake you if it was. This didn't have to happen, but it did. Oops. It'll be okay. That doesn't help us in our suffering. What helps is knowing I don't know what the purpose is. But this wasn't meaningless. I will never forget him relaying that to me. And I'm grateful that she set that example for me so that when I hit times in my life when I have to suffer, I can fall back on that same foundation. It is laying a foundation for us. Even the greatest suffering the world has ever known was planned. Jesus' suffering in the place of sinners was all planned by God from the very beginning. Jesus experiencing God's wrath against all of sin across all time for all those who believe. There is no greater suffering to be had. And it was both planned and for a purpose. So that's the second truth. Number three. Rejoice in the midst of suffering. To many, this might sound odd. Why are we to rejoice in the midst of suffering? Isn't that a contradiction? It's important to see how God relates our rejoicing to suffering by looking at a vital word. As I turn back to our passage. Look here with me in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Here's the vital word, very beginning. But. 
it is such a small word, but so important. And as a side note, sometimes some of the most seemingly insignificant words in Scripture are actually the most important for us. Last week, we talked about examining the Scriptures like the Bereans in Acts 17. If you want to be a better examiner of Scripture, pay attention to the details. These small words are very significant. So the word but here is a contrasting word. I don't want the broccoli, but... I do want the chocolate cake. Okay? Contrast. What is the rejoicing being contrasted with? Look at the first exhortation in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. And then after that phrase, there's a whole bunch of descriptive words. Then it picks up in verse 13. So if we take all the descriptive words out, here's how it reads. Beloved, do not be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoicing in the midst of our suffering can only come when we expect suffering. We rejoice because we are not surprised by it. And we're not surprised by it because we know God plans it and has a purpose for it. Do you see how all of these things hold themselves together? Gabriel has this little puzzle that someone gifted him. It's like a sphere. And you like put these pieces in, and if you pull one little piece out, the whole thing collapses. Wonderful toy idea for an impatient five or six-year-old. But he loves it. It's, I think it's still set up in his room. You pull one little piece out, the whole thing collapses. So it is with our suffering. How is it that we rejoice in our suffering? Well, we have to expect our suffering, and we have to know that God has planned it for a purpose if we're to expect it. And whenever we know that God has planned it for a purpose, it's coming, I'm expecting it, then we can rejoice. And in verse 13, Peter hints at that purpose in the next phrase. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So the purpose in our suffering, in part, is that we would share Christ's sufferings. When Jesus suffered, he provided a model for us to teach us how to suffer well how to respond in the midst of our own trials. While we tend to respond sinfully to trials, Jesus always responded perfectly. When we share his type of suffering, this right suffering, that is the foundation of our rejoicing in the midst of suffering. And this leads to the next truth here, number four. We are responsible for our suffering. We are responsible for our suffering. I don't mean this like we are responsible for causing our, our suffering, though we are responsible for causing our suffering. It's because of sin that we have suffering. But that's not what I'm intending by this. Rather, here's what I mean. It's more like there is a right and a wrong reason to suffer, and there's a right and wrong response to our suffering, and we are responsible for both. First, look at the reason here in verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, 
or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So there is a suffering that comes because you've done what is right, and then there's a suffering that comes because you've done something wrong. Note this, suffering is not a sign that you've done something wrong. Trials are not a sign that you've done something wrong. Sometimes we can be tempted to think, well, what did I do to deserve this? God, what did I do to deserve this? We read from Job this morning. What did Job do to deserve that? Nothing. Nothing. It was suffering that was planned for a purpose. Just because you are suffering or going through a trial does not mean that something wrong has happened. Now that could be the case, but it's not necessarily the case. So many times we have this unhealthy knee-jerk reaction, but a balanced approach says sometimes I will suffer even though nothing wrong has happened. Look at Jesus' suffering. He suffered and he never did anything wrong. So surely it would happen to us. So part of our responsibility in suffering is making sure that we don't suffer for the wrong reasons. And if you look here in the text, at verse 15, he gives this list. Let none of you suffer. Here's some wrong reasons. As a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. The first three examples here are obvious. We would look at that and say, well, duh. But this last one is interesting. This is the only occurrence of this word in the Bible. It occurs one time in this passage, which makes it kind of hard to define. How do we know that meddler is the best English translation of that word? It makes it difficult. The word can also be translated busybody, which is a word that we have in our Bible, and it's another word, so I think they've made the right decision to not apply that here. The root of this word that appears one time in the Bible is episkopos. And if you were with us when we went through 1 Timothy, that word should sound very familiar. It's the word in our Bible for overseer. It's a title that we give to the office of the church that I'm filling right now. The pastor. Pastor, overseer, it's the same. And that's the root of the word here for meddler. It's a compound word. The second half is this, or I guess from your side, the second half is this overseer word, but the first half is a word that on its own means one another or others. It's like a community term. So the idea behind this improper action here is an improper going between people and trying to orchestrate and scheme. I think meddler is probably a pretty good translation of that word. I was surprised, like, okay, but that, that's, that's pretty accurate. I thought I'd be able to call somebody out on something. No. So this meddler is one who schemes by trying to orchestrate others for an evil purpose. That is a wrong reason to suffer. On the contrary, verse 16, if we suffer because of something that flows from our identity as Christians, we are to not be ashamed but to glorify God. So if I suffer because I did what was right, that is, that is worthy of praise to our Lord. For our students, when you go into school, 
and someone says something wrong to someone else and you stand in the gap and you suffer for it, that is right. That pleases our God. Adults, when you're in the workplace and you notice something is wrong and you know when you point it out, you're going to be helping one person, but you're going to be thrown under the bus. That is a good reason to suffer. We ought to suffer for those reasons. We're responsible for how we respond to our suffering. And God takes that responsibility very seriously. Just because we're forgiven does not mean that we aren't responsible for our suffering in the same way that just because we're forgiven doesn't mean we're not responsible to pursue holiness. That's why in verses 17 through 18, Peter talks about judgment beginning at the household of God. And if you go back to verse 13, now the second half of the sentence makes a lot of sense. Rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Another small word. So that. There is a causal relationship. So we're not only responsible for the reasons of our suffering, whether I've done something good or bad and suffering for it, but we're responsible for our response when that suffering arrives. Rejoice now so that you'll rejoice then, in the future. What's implicit there is that if we do not rejoice in our suffering now, we will not be rejoicing then. It's similar to other passages in Scripture where Jesus says, the one who is not forgiving will not be forgiven. Or the Bible's teaching that if we don't love our brother, the love of God is not within us. It's not that we earn our future destination by how we respond to our trials. It's that how we are currently responding to our trials reveals something about who we are and our future state. We don't just rejoice because we're supposed to. That's very difficult to do. We rejoice because that's who we are becoming on the inside. That is who we are as Christians. We are like our Savior who rejoiced in his suffering because it was all a part of God's will. Now there's two more responses to suffering, but I've put that together in our last truth this morning. One final truth. Number five. These are both responses to suffering that we're responsible for. Number five. When suffering, trust and obey. Trust and obey. Look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Many of our hymns are very strategically composed. Not as many of our contemporary songs are, but a lot of those are as well. And trust and obey is no exception. This is just as practical as it gets. Number one, when you suffer, entrust your soul to God. I, I notice that it describes God with the title creator here. And not just creator, but faithful creator. So the idea is God created you. He has promised to sustain you. He's not a liar. He's not weak. He will do it. He's faithful. So since he created you and he loves you and he's faithful, entrust your soul to him in the midst of your suffering. Now that is much easier said than done. But as an American, I love how practical it is. 
entrust my soul to God in the midst of my suffering. Yes, your trial is hard. Yes, your suffering is going to hurt. Trust God because you belong to him and whatever he's doing is ultimately for good, even if you can't see it. And while you trust God, obey. Do what is right in the midst of your suffering. Don't fall victim to the saying from earlier, hurting people hurt people. Don't become one of those people. One final passage to drive this point home is 2 Peter. We're real close. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 5 through 11 for us. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from all his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The instruction here is to supplement. Though our faith is what saves us, faith by itself is not enough to live a, a successful, effective Christian life. Along with the faith, we are to supplement it to add an addition to virtue, self-control. Look at the result of all of these qualities in verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. And then in verse 9, he says that the one who lacks these qualities is blind, nearsighted. It's like in the midst of your trial, you lose all of your depth perception. You are not able to see. Your vision becomes blurry because you didn't expect it. You're disoriented, and all you can respond to is what's immediately around you. I can't see five days down the road. I can't see 50 minutes down the road. I am in suffering now, and it hurts. And when we don't put on these virtues, it's like it it encourages this blindness so that I can't see forward and I can't see backwards. We're so caught up in the moment that we can't see what God is up to down the road and we can't remember what God has done for us in the past. We think, this is not right, God. But we forget someone else has already suffered way worse than we have. God, this isn't right that I'm suffering. This is pointless. But we forget all these times in our life when God purposes suffering for a reason. If we are not careful to do what is right in the midst of our suffering, we will become blind, ineffective, unfruitful. 
There are innumerable personal applications from this text. But I would like to end our service this morning by applying it directly to our church. We are in the midst of a trial. Do not be surprised. It's not abnormal. It is planned, and it is for a purpose. Moving forward, we need to evaluate the reason for our suffering. Are we suffering for what is good or for what is bad? We need to respond to our trial with rejoicing, with trust, with praise to the Lord, with doing good. We need to do good in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ or else our current trial will lead us to be ineffective and unfruitful as a church. So let's take full advantage of the trial in our church and suffer well so that this trial may produce something spectacular for the glory of God and for our good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Though it is so sharp and it cuts deep, that cut is not meaningless. It is planned for a purpose. We thank you that you are a supreme surgeon who carefully and intentionally cuts into us with the sword of your word so that we might be further conformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. God, would you pierce our hearts if you haven't already right now in this moment that we might bear the fruit of repentance and faith and effectiveness and fruitfulness. Stir our affections for you in the midst of our trial. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.